Hey, good morning, everyone. Today with us, we have Lauren Kaplan, PhD. Um, Lauren and I work together at Meta AI, and uh, when I was leading the AI privacy team, Lauren was my user research counterpart. So I'm very excited to talk to Lauren today. We're going to cover what it means to do user research for AI. Um, and this is going to be a really fun conversation because I don't know how many people are actually familiar with user research um, and user research for AI specifically. So let's kick it off. Um, Lauren, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself to start. Right. Well, first of all, it's great um, to be doing this. And so thanks again for having me. Um, so a little bit about my background. I'm a sociologist and I'm also a mixed methods researcher. So that's a bit of my background. I don't know how much more you want me to get into it. But when we were working together, I was at Facebook AI. And prior to that, um, worked on things like homelessness and other social issues. What does mixed methods mean? That means that a researcher can do both qualitative and quantitative methods and ideally know how to combine them in a way to generate quality insights. This is a perfect segue into <laughs> actually talking about what, is, what does user research even mean? Uh, tell us a little bit more about this discipline. Um, in just, you know, let's start off with the general, uh, in general, and then we can go into the details um, around the AI. Yeah, so at a high level, I would, there's a few ways that you could define user research. I see user research as the systematic application, again, of the qualitative and quantitative research methods, um, ideally with rigor to understand user needs, expectations, behaviors. And the core element of this is really leveraging research to advocate for people-centric experiences. And how do you match your user research work to the, the product work that uh, is ongoing. Yeah, I mean, we can go into that area if it's helpful. I can also share examples of what qualitative and quantitative even mean. Those definitions. Let's do it. Very. Love it. Let's yeah. do it. So I would say for qualitative, there's like a range of different approaches for both sides. On one end with qualitative, you can do things like one-on-one -on -one interviews or diary studies to really go in-depth into understanding people's foundational needs. On the quantitative side, you can do things like surveys and you can understand things like you can examine different patterns, right? And understand what's most prevalent among your target users. How are different beliefs associated with different desired outcomes? Maybe you're looking at perceptions of trust and safety and the willingness to try um, your products, for example. So that might be some high level examples and there's way more than that to go into, but. Yeah, and let's say you're, let's say you're a startup and you're building out your generative AI product. Uh, how would you describe the benefits of doing user research? I think that one of the core benefits is you may have certain assumptions about your product that you haven't tested and you could be off and that could be really costly later down the road. I also think there are, at least in my experience, what I've done is doing both market products and also a bit of different types of research. So a researcher can help you to identify opportunities in the market, help you to inform things like your go-to-market strategy and do those things in a more systematic way and to avoid any bias and really by putting people first and aligning them with your business needs. 
And I think it's sometimes people confuse user feedback with user research. How、yeah. should we differentiate between those two? Right. So,、um, in terms of user feedback, that might be like, let's say, Natalia, the product, you know, lead or director or VP of all. Oh, you elevated me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or you have, let's say, even engineering with maybe a more, you know, engineering-focused product sits down and does a one-one and just sits down and talks to people and asks them about their experiences using a product. I think that's really useful and it can get you. A little bit of a finger of a pulse on how close you are to your users' needs, but you're not going to be systematically assessing them, and you need to really have a user researcher somewhere in your process. Whether it's deciding whether you want to do an interview or some other sort of methodology, whether it's deciding how are you going to find people, what are the criteria that you're using to include people to talk to. The design of the questions you're going to ask them. Let's say I'm doing an interview. It's a certain skill to know where to probe and go deeper to really hit the topics that you need to cover, and also just doing the analysis and doing things.、Um, I keep saying systematically, but really like identifying patterns in a rigorous way. If you don't have a user researcher in that process, and you're sort of talking to people, you're not. That's more user feedback. Yeah, I remember we did this together. For AI privacy, and that was a very interesting and challenging area because people either either really care about privacy or they don't. But then the other challenging part of it was the privacy-preserving machine learning technologies, which are so nascent. Right? They were. You had a lot of things that just went from research to production, and just having the language to explain those was. To me, was the super par-、uh, helpful part of our collaboration and seeing what resonates with people because a lot of this stuff was just like incredibly researchy and technical and getting people to understand it and the ramifications. So, just for everyone, that, that that's something I enjoyed.、Um, I enjoyed、uh, collaborating with you on. So,、um, but yeah, that I mean, I think that's a good. Good segue into the the next big question.、Um, user research is int it, it, it's interesting to think about what it means for AI. What are some of the challenges you you ran into when you were trying to do do user research for AI? For AI, I think first of all, just onboarding into the space of AI and building. Being willing to learn how AI works, you may not need to, for example, know how to train a model yourself or deploy it into production. But having some basic understanding of the technologies is important. And I would advise people who are interested in this to not be intimidated. And as long as you're curious about how things work and you're willing to ask questions, I think that you'll be fine.、Um, also, AI I think tends to work very quickly, so. Being able to execute very quickly. Also, you may have,、um, depending on your domain space, like the privacy work we did is just one small subset, and then generative AI is just one small subset. AI is much more broad than this, and so I think really, to be successful, you need to be able to really identify trends in AI more broadly as well. But I mean, I think also another really important area is like as a user researcher, your role is to advocate for the user needs, and you need to find a way to be diplomatic and to really align those with the business needs, as well as as 
you know, resonating with your different stakeholders and having those relationships. Like you might be partnering with design or you might not be, you might be working straight with engineering. You might not have a product manager. So I think it's very important to have those strong relationships, which I think is part of the reason I'm here right now, right? Is that we work together and we have these successful relationships as well. Yeah, I think that's so crucial because a lot of times the kinds of AI technologies that we're seeing coming onto the market are not human-centric first. People are not thinking about the implications and they're not thinking about like how to get things out there. Um, so I think you know having you as one of the people to work with and collaborate just really kept uh, kept the the user part really in focus and um it, it was good to always have that that ongoing focus on on the the user um you know generative ai is something that's just like blown up recently in the past what like few months really um if how would you approach user research for generative ai I think the same way that I would approach it for any other topic. I think the core of user research is the methods that you're using and then mapping that also to where a product is and what your goals are. I think that there are some specific areas that might be more developed and useful. And I've shared a few resources with you that you know we can share with others. But one is really, again, like you said, staying core to the human-centered and people-centric AI perspective, which our former AI user research director in AI shared a great article on, which I shared with you. Um, in terms of other frameworks, there are there is work, there's lots of work on explainable AI, trustworthy AI, some work at Carnegie Mellon on those elements of safety and trust. And then the work that we did get together that we that's published publicly that people can check out was focused on a framework for how to really best communicate about um, privacy preserving machine learning. Like what are people's needs in understanding these technologies? Um, for example, people might not want that technical jargon, but they may care a little bit more about what data is being used and why. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that privacy preserving work that you did? and how you approached it. Yeah, so I mean, the piece that is, I can just discuss what's in the article, which is a sort of a high level yeah, yeah, summary. Yeah, just do that. Um, so essentially what we, we did in that work was to, we had, we needed to develop a foundation for how to best communicate about these technologies because they, like you mentioned, can be very confusing to understand and we don't really know what information is most important to people. And so the goal of that study was to understand from a diverse set of um, perspectives, from not only the people who might be using, let's say, an AI-enabled application, but also AI ethicists, AI experts from social science to computer science, media as well, and policymakers. Um, you know, is this, is this language explaining um, a given technology clear? Does it help people to make decisions they feel good about? Is it meeting their needs? And so that was at the core of what we did. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I think I'll add a link so that people can look into this more. I think AI privacy is a really interesting area that um, is an emerging area. I, I think a lot of it is not understood, but it's very interesting. It just uh, brings to mind a recent example where 
Samsung got burned with uh, privacy because <laughs> their engineers decided to use ChatGPT, and in doing so, they actually shared some proprietary source code um, externally, and that got them into privacy trouble. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's something that people should think about a lot. Um, another really interesting thing that came up recently, I'd love to get your opinion on this one, is something called AI-driven user research. What is this? It sounds a little bit crazy. Oh, so basically, like, how is AI going to affect user research? No, no, this is the synthetic users for user research. Remember? Oh, right. So, I mean, at a high level... There is a company, and I believe their name is actually Synthetic Users, and they shared out this preprint, which if anyone is going to read is about 56 pages long, so shared that with you. Um, essentially, trying to examine whether or not you could, instead of surveying you know, human users, you can take the output of, let's say, a large language model, like ChatGPT, for example, I think that was what they used, um, and see if the results you get are mapping to what you might find in a survey. So they did a series of studies to sort of examine that. I will say that that research wasn't peer reviewed and something that I think is important there is that work, whenever you have a new methodology or a new approach, it needs to be systematically and rigorously analyzed by people who are experts in that field. And I do think that although peer review might sound very academic, like the publishing world has picked up the pace and is moving faster. And I know that like the editor, editor in chief of JAMA journal, the journal of the Amer American Medical Association was like one of my former directors. I know that she's working really hard to get things approved really quickly. Right. So I just think that whenever there's a new approach, it's very important that we can see the strengths and the limitations and make sure we're thinking critically about what we use. Um, so that's what I would have to say about this synthetic user piece. I think it's important to be open to these new approaches, but also to really stay grounded into, can I really evaluate this approach? If not, who can? And like, when might I use this? What needs to change for this to maybe be viable, right? I think there are also some other areas that I think are, are interesting because like I mentioned before, I do think that at least in my experience with AI and user research, you do tend to do, you might, for example, do some market research. And I noticed that people might want to save time. There's this big push right on optimization, you know, saving time and how can AI help us to do this with research. And so companies, a few companies that I tested out like Perplexia AI, and I'm going to pronounce this likely wrong, but Wachello.ai, they both sort of offer these tools to do sort of market research or you can ask Perplexia AI a market research related question and it will give you an output along with the sources, which is great because a core part of research is that you need to be able to quality control your sources of information. And then Wakello will actually output a market research report for you. I'll say that like looking at the output and I know how hard it is technically to even get that to work. So definitely not, you know, criticizing it, but I don't think that those tools are fully like ready or they won't really replace researchers, right? There are tools for research where you might, let's say, use them to get information more quickly or synthesize information in a faster way. And then maybe you can do some editing and work with that. Or a second 
you know, benefit could be that some of them might offer you a visual structure for your insights that you might not have thought of before. And like, you know, all these different tools that are coming out for creating your decks because everyone wants to be able to do that more efficiently. So that's some of the top of minds for that. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that would be super helpful is AI is so hot right now and <laughs> everyone is jumping on the bandwagon. But what advice would you give to somebody who is looking in to get into user research for AI? I would say, again, the willingness and curiosity and a sincere and deep curiosity to learn about technology and actually having an interest in that. Also being adaptable, being able to, you know, pivot to a very rapidly changing landscape are really important. Um, I think something that I'm also noticing and I'm seeing a little bit more coming out now where I think researchers are finding it even more important to bet, to articulate the value of, you know, hey, you can save cost by having user research. And these are the specific ways how, because I think maybe somehow research has become this amorphous thing that people don't fully understand how it's working. And so there's this sense that sort of it's not needed or it's not tangible to people. And so I do see efforts in making, showing that value as well. And so I do think that researchers also have to advocate for why you need the research in the first place, even more than ever before. Cool. So Lauren, um, what are some of the, how do you, how do you stay on top of the latest AI advances? Cause you're always sending me stuff. Thank you so much. You're, I feel like you're keeping me informed. I think there are a few ways. I mean, one, I was very fortunate to be able to work with PyTorch. And so in working with PyTorch, you, you have to stay in touch with all those things. And so one is through sort of network and just being fortunate to be connected with all these really great AI researchers and engineers that are really doing this work. Um, secondly, I would say that I was always sort of interested in these topics and I used to use Twitter quite a bit as I think I mentioned to you in terms of, you know, tracking things and then sort of fell off. And then as we had these conversations, went back into it. Um, so I do think that a lot of it does come from the research that I did and then sort of knowing who like really i think it's helpful with any area whether it be something like public health to you know ai is knowing who the experts are and it's helpful when you start at the very beginning of a wave because you can sort of track things as they go but yeah i'm constantly looking for things so that's a pretty long rambling way i think that <laughs> a lot of people are talking about ai and i do think it's really important that people have skills in being able to evaluate some of the discourse that's going on, because there's definitely a lot of different reasons that people are talking about AI in the ways that they are. And it's, I don't know that the average person's going to understand the nuances of what's going on. Uh, you just mentioned PyTorch, and I realized this is potentially a hot topic, which is how would you do user research for open source AI? Um, cause that is like a whole another area in and of itself. How did you approach doing, um, user research for PyTorch? Yeah. So, I mean, PyTorch is very broad space, right? So you have to be, I had to be very open and willing to cover a lot of ground and think about what are the foundational elements of AI in the first place. And that helped me to stay a bit grounded. 
Essentially, I think the core thing I'm going to go back to is also, you know, starting off with the core things of like having a source of truth, which is that research plan, right? Where you have your research aims, they're very clear. You're meeting with your stakeholders, you're meeting with your product leads, your engineering leads, marketing, whoever your core stakeholders are, and you're making sure that whatever's going on across all the various things of PyTorch, that these research questions and these approach and the people that you want to talk to or the approach you want to take is going to help answer the questions that those teams need. So I'm always going to go to the core, like this is how I approach it. I will say that it was definitely a much broader space than privacy, preserving machine learning. That's like one space, right? PyTorch, I do think I learned a lot about just having to cover so when I say like foundational elements that help me stay grounded, it's like, okay, well, what are the AI domains? Are they doing computer vision? Are they doing NLP? What type of data are they using? Um, what type of languages are people using as well? What about their roles, their jobs, their pain points? And just kind of anchoring in those things can be useful. Um, I also think that maybe some researchers, even really talented ones with, you know, lots of experience might be intimidated a bit. And I've noticed that. Um, people would come to me and say, hey, you've done this research and can you can you look this over? Like, I've never done this before. And, and I'd be like, wow, I'm really impressed by this person and they're intimidated. So I think it's totally normal for people to feel intimidated at first. But I think once you get going, you'll see that there's always more to learn. And it's more about knowing, like, where do you have to go deeper? And where can you maybe just make a trade off and say, maybe that's for another study or another. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other really interesting aspect of the work that you've done is sort of, I imagine that in your role, you had to bring two very different worlds together. The world of human-centric product development, thinking about the user, thinking about the people, versus the purely technical AI researchers, right? We talked we talked earlier about how like people tend to confuse user researchers with AI researchers, but they're very different disciplines, right? Um, do you have any tips for how do you talk to AI researchers? Because they do live in a technical world of their own. So how did you bridge that gap? I mean, I just see them as researchers of a dis different discipline. Like, hey, you are a computer and perhaps you're a computer scientist or, you know, and I'm a social scientist and I just listen to their concerns and like I would any other stakeholder, right? Um, and I think when you start just from having empathy and listening to people and what their needs are, then you can develop, a you know, a productive relationship. I don't think it has to be like, mysticized and I don't really believe in the stereotype that, oh, they're very difficult to work with, or maybe I was just lucky, but I think that the technical leads and the AI researchers and engineers that I work with were all like very happy to answer questions. If I had a question like, hey, that's a great question. Yeah, how would you possibly know that? Yeah. And so I think when you kind of approach it that way, there hopefully won't be any issues. What are the things that AI researchers should think about that are more from a human perspective, that are more from a social science perspective that maybe they don't think? Like if you In were to teach, if you were to teach AI researchers about your side, your world, and the way that you think about products, um, and in, in all of the work that you've done talking to people, what, what are the things you say? What, what, what are the things they should do that they're not doing or that they should understand better that they don't? 
That's a hard question because I think that's very specific, like to yeah. a given person and what they're working on. I think that's true. Yeah. You, some people are more, but I do find, I will tell you one thing, like from my experience, a lot of the AI research papers don't actually even mention applications of the, their work or technology, how you can, <laughs> what, what people can do with them, right? A lot of the AI research papers will focus on the technical, the purely technical aspects of improvements on the math. But you like you look at the paper and you're like, I don't know what I'm in, what I could potentially do with this if I was to build a product, right? So that's one example that I've seen where I feel like if they could just name at least one application um, for the work that they're doing, like that would be super helpful for the rest of us, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense when you frame it in terms of a paper. Like, I can picture, you know, having some sense of ideally a responsible application of this model, thinking of, you know, it from a responsible AI perspective, and then also defining a few potential use cases. And also, ideally, you know, thinking about ways to mitigate any potential harms, whether they be more technical from the security side, but that's a lot to ask for a research paper. And I can realize that, right? Because yeah, we're trying to throw in a lot, but I mean, I have done, this is about, this is a bit out there, but back in the day, I was interested in a field called phylogenetics, which basically is like how viruses evolve over time. And you can use that to sort of track disease progression. And I had, you know, was just interested in this topic and how can we tie that to social factors? And something that I did was really like looking over the research paper it's like a global effort and bringing in the more social side. Like, what are some reasons why, you know, this virus might be moving from this place to that place? What do we you know from a social perspective, right? Is it some role of migration? Also, how do we frame this in a way that might not like discriminate against people and immigration? So it's like there's these subtle things and ways you can contribute, even just in the language or in the framing of things when you have people from different fields come together. I love that. I think the power of framing is so essential in product development and people don't realize. And it's also an art um, and it's a skill in and of itself. And it's something that I've been you know, thinking about for the past five years of my career, which has been much longer. Um, but actually in how you communicate things to people is is really is really crucial to success of a of a product um going back to some of your work around ai privacy like if there's what is the one thing about ai privacy in general you know it doesn't have to be meta specific that really stood out for you that maybe people should understand that but they don't these models right they update along with the software updates at night because you know the device is not going to be interrupted and so there's all these nuances of like how machine learning is going to affect your actual like devices that people own people don't and i think it's pretty clear through like the lack of trust and the challenges that people have had with technology more broadly across different companies is like just i don't think people still even understand how their data is currently being used and now we're going to layer on top even more complex technologies and 
I don't think also when going back to framing, I don't think people realize how sensitive and delicate the branding of AI is because it could be very easily branded as cheap, right? Like this is just um, no craftsmanship made by a machine, not handcrafted by a human being, but it's being framed as state of the art, bleeding edge, you know? And so all these things matter in people's adoption. So, but I just don't think that people fully realize like these are just I think that we really need to have foundational elements right which many people have you know put forth for AI frameworks of just you know trust safety privacy fairness you know transparency all of these ethical components are going to be crucial because in the long run you're not going to have success if those are not going to be implemented into the AI and so privacy overlaps with these different topics, right? Privacy overlaps with fairness, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting, thinking back to our time at Meta, is a lot of times there's tension between these different uh, components of building AI responsibly, like fairness and AI privacy can actually be at odds with each other at some at, uh, at times. And you have to kind of, you have to always make trade offs. Um, and those trade-offs are dependent upon, you know, what you're building and what the user needs are. So like AI privacy famously has um, always means that you might take a hit on your product metrics in order to do right by users. So that's that's really good. Um, so Lauren, what is what is something that stood out to you uh, from your work on PyTorch? Uh, is there anything that was surprising from a user research perspective? all the different communities around it and how to meet people's needs. I think that it's definitely an exciting space. I think there's also a lot of complexities involved with um, across like B2B and also B2C that I'm not sure how deep to get into. But um, I don't know that anything really like fully surprises me, but I think that um, one thing is just like setting a foundation for work that's sort of like feeling I was going to say Wild West, but it sounds so ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, there, you might not have, like, research, um, like, ops operations, like, actually available to you, right? You might be having to create those things as you're doing your research. And I was actually surprised, like, with developer research, um, what a hard-to-reach population they were. It makes sense, like, once you're actually in it. But my background, like, I've recruited really hard to reach populations in my work. Like I've worked on homelessness, I've worked on AIDS affected youth in South Africa. Like I've worked on pretty hard topics, homicide, like really those types of things. And then I go, I think, oh yeah, you know, industry work, like, yeah, they wanted to recruit a ML engineer. That shouldn't be too hard. But actually these people are just bombarded, right? With requests to do things. And so there's a very nuanced way to do developer research and I think that's a really strong skill set skill set to have that I didn't anticipate you know necessarily um that right I just kind of assumed that maybe it wouldn't be that I thought I assumed it would be easier to maybe find these people I didn't expect to find new ways of giving that I love that what are some of the ways that really worked <laughs> Well, I think that being very clear again on your criteria and being really persistent and you. Um, awesome. So thank you so much, Lauren. Um, 
as we wrap up, like what are things that you're excited about in AI or AI research for that matter? Well, I'm definitely excited about privacy. So I would love to see, you know, work related to that continue and be invested in and the ethical uh, components of AI. I'm curious how that will play out. I do think that it's exciting that we're exploring areas like creativity. Actually, something that comes to mind that I think is going to start growing, and I think it's coming more from the computer science space, but I think we're going to learn a lot about how human beings think and how machines think, and that's going to sort of inform our understanding of intelligence uh, more broadly. So those are some of the things I'm curious about. Actually, something that I didn't mention for research is I do think there are some methods from like user research or social science or behavioral sciences that um, could be too time intensive in the past to do. And if they can be implemented in a private secure way could be very exciting. So for example, in my time in Germany, there was a method that I um, developed an expertise in called the biographical uh, approach, which is essentially a really open interview where I basically would say like, Natalia, tell me about your life as, you know, a PM extraordinaire, you know, and like, just tell me your life story. And usually people actually want a lot of guidance and like, well, what do you want to know? It's like, tell me your story. It's your story. And, you know, have people talk for an hour and you'll have like 20 pages of transcripts and you'll be analyzing the way that people communicate their story and you're going really deep and that's really time intensive. And I was always curious about how to use that method in industry, but it just takes too much time right now, like to even analyze one interview, right? And do the biography of, for, I don't know, of an AI researcher. What's the biography of their story and how can we learn from that potentially? And so I think that some of these methods, if we do it in a transparent and rigorous way, they could help us to have new tools to do these methods potentially more quickly. But, you know, we'll see what happens. I love that. Thank you so much, Lauren. I learned so much from you from and really enjoyed working together during our time at Meta AI. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalia.